0: This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is Brad Meltzer. Brad is the author of more books than I can count in multiple genres. His latest, The Lightning Rod, is out now. But if you're a conspiracy person, you have to pick up the first conspiracy, the Lincoln conspiracy. He has a new conspiracy book that is coming out next year, and he also has a series of children's books, the I Am series, that are just fantastic. And what a great guy. Could not have been kinder, more helpful, and an incredible author. Such an inspiration to everyone who picks up the pen. So now, without further ado, Brad Meltzer. You've got to be the one of, if not the busiest author out there. I mean, you have so many different things going on. You have the thrillers, you have the nonfiction. Listen, says side the, of the guy house. who's
1: got his own podcast interviewing people. <laughs>
0: well, I mean, it. Uh, I, I got a few. I'm juggling a few different things, but then I look at and you and I'm deal, like, and the
1: movie deal, and the stuff.
0: Yeah, that way. I mean, it's been a very busy couple of years, and I feel extremely fortunate uh, for that. But I see what you're doing. I mean, the kids' side of the house. I think we have. I, actually, just before this, I thought we had every uh, of uh, every one of the kids' books, and then I looked and I saw how many there were. I'm like, "Oh, I think we might be missing one or two because there are so many." So you have the kids' one, you have the the nonfiction side of the house coming out uh, or that are that are out, and you have the thrillers. I mean, you have a lot going on, and you've done all these things in Hollywood as well. A couple of different shows. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah. And you know, we've been lucky. I, the truth is, is I remember and, and again, started my career stuff. I remember this one author who you know and I know, one of the most famous ones out there, has a recurring character. And I remember he said to me privately once, like, oh man, if I have to write this character again, I want to put a gun in my mouth. Oh. And I remember going, like, I never want to be that author. Wow. I never want to be that guy. Like, I yeah. never want to be where something that I love so much and my characters I love so much want to hate. So for me, going and doing the kids' books, it like, you know, when I of course the grass is always greener. So when I do a kid's book. And I come back to the thrillers recharge, you know, and, and if I go do a TV show, I'm like, oh, I want to do another kid's book or I want, and it just helps me come back. Like that first book we all do, where we're just all passion and no knowledge, like, but it's the best thing you do because it's just all passion. Um, I need that every day.
0: Yeah, no, I I, lo- I love that because it's been a couple of years since the last uh, thriller with these characters uh, came out. So uh, so people have been waiting because they were yeah, such four a years, so popular. four years,
1: four years, yeah. the longest, lo- the longest between. I mean, it's not like we've disappeared, but like, yeah, it's been four years since I had a thriller out and everyone's like, oh, the escape artist. We love those characters. What do you do? I'm like, I'm working on it. And finally, four years later, we get the lightning rod.
0: Yeah, and that's out this week. So you're doing a ton of interviews right now. So I'm keeping my eye on the clock because I know what it's like to do them in a row and uh, <laughs> give you a little breathing room uh, before the before the next one. Uh, but speaking of that, because you've done this for a while now, do you ever are you ever in one of these interviews and you're telling a story because someone asks you a similar question and you're thinking in your head? did I just tell the same story I told to this same interviewer five minutes ago, or was this 20 minutes ago on the previous podcast or the previous interview? Is, oh, does uh, that you, happen?
1: You, you, uh, please, of course. But <laughs> the, the older I get, by the way, course, the more that happens. Like in the beginning, you're like, wait, when you're young, you can remember crap. I can't remember crap anymore. Like, So I'm like, and I'm in the middle of this interview. No, I'm joking. Um, you know, but like, tr- I mean, podcasts are like this are different because we're going to do a long form thing. Like when you have that, you know, for those listening out there, like, They'll put you on like a radio tour. We'll go in four-minute bumps or eight-minute bumps from like here's Cleveland, here's you know Michigan, here's whatever, like all across the day, North Dakota, South Dakota. Here's California. You're in LA now. You're in San Francisco. You're back in Florida, and you are just doing interview after interview, the same thing over and over. Basically, your same story over and. And you literally don't know what joke you told because you just told it. But the good part is, <laughs> this is like the beginning. The book doesn't. The book is out now, um, as we're you know as as you're hearing it. But the truth is, is Jack and I are recording a little early, so this is one of my first ones. So I get to all the stuff I'm going to make up. I'm going to make up right here.
0: Oh, perfect, perfect. And <laughs> I you
1: guys are pitch. I got nothing. I just came. <laughs> I'm telling you, I did not come. I came like I'm going to talk to my buddy, and we're going to have a good time. And that's where we're going to go, and we'll have a good time.
0: That is perfect. And that, that's what I love about podcasts, because it gives us that, uh, that, that opportunity. It gives us the excuse to sit down because I have wanted to, to talk to you and meet you in person hope, for a long time. And, uh, and this gives us the excuse to actually, even though it's not in person, it's as close as we can get in today's world with you in Florida. I think you're in Florida right now. Is that I'm right? I'm in
1: Florida. Oh yeah. And We're there. all the good crazy. Whatever crazy state you live in, to listeners out there, I see your crazy state and I raise you Florida. (laughs) Well,
0: Florida has that reputation, not just recently, but I mean, I grew up in the Miami Vice days, of course. So as a, as a kid, I'm seeing all all that and I'm seeing the fashion and the Ferraris and the whole, the whole deal. Uh, I moved to, (laughs) I moved
1: to Florida around the time of Miami Vice. And I remember being like, what is wrong with this place? But I will tell you, Jack, that to my prom, which was in 1988 at the height of Miami Vice, I guess my junior prom, it was like, um, I wore a, I wore a white suit with shoulder pads, purple shirt, thin purple tie. And I thought I was the most styling guy in junior high. I remember (laughs) I looked at my buddy who I rented the limo with so we could split the price and he was wearing a black tuxedo. And I looked at him, I said, man, you are so out of style. And I look like such a putz in that picture. Now it's It's so so great.
0: No, that's fantastic. I, I absolutely love it. Uh, it's so fun to go back and look at those, those old photos. And, and now if you want, you can share them on these throwback Thursdays and flashback Fridays and have a you know personal touch point with people who also grew up, who also dressed like that in 1988, uh, and humanize, you know, or yourself a little bit, but, uh, but did you grow, did you, did you grow up in Florida? Or did you grow up somewhere else?
1: No, I grew up in, in, in New York. My family yes. was in New York and, um, New York kind of just kicked my family's butt is the honest truth. Mm-hmm. My dad lost his job when he was 39 years old and he didn't just lose his job. My dad was always bad with money. So he had $1,200 to his name. He said, we're going to have the do over of life as if it was a fun game we were playing. And, <laughs> but it was terrifying. Cause it wasn't just, they didn't have money. Um, but we lost safety. You know, we lost mm-hmm. that thing as a kid that you really need. And we moved down. I remember we left New York tail between our legs And my grandmother, like everyone's grandmother, lived in Florida, so we would have a free place to stay. He had no money, had $1,200 to his name, two kids and a wife, and put us in the car. And I remember we drove down from New York to Florida. We had to live with my grandmother for months because he couldn't even afford the security deposit to get a new rental place. And and it was my whole family and my grandmother and my grandfather in a one-bedroom condominium where we had to sneak in the back because the people in the condo, you weren't allowed to stay there if you were a kid. And so they would sneak us in, like literally in the middle of the night, like we were in some kind of like seal raid, but like geriatric and Jewish, Um, (laughs) like in a condo in Florida. But those were like really scary times. And and luckily, my parents lied. They gave a fake address so I could go to the wealthy public school where I was zoned was not a great school. And so they gave a fake address for four years. Our report card never came home. And I got to give a fake address so I could go to the wealthy public school and that school changed my life. I had teachers and people that just took chances on me and said, kid man, you know how to write, you know how to do this stuff. And they really just kind of helped me get on my way to to kind of get to college and, and be the first to go there for my immediate family.
0: Wow. So, but in college, you didn't quite yet know that you wanted to be a writer or did you, I didn't did you know jack shit
1: about anything, man. I, <laughs> I really thought, I thought you went to high school and you get a job. That's what you do. That's what, that's what my parents did. That's what you do. You go to high school, you get a job. And my mom was always like, oh, you would have gone to college. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I remember the first time I heard what the SAT was, someone said, hey, Mel, are you taking the SAT? I'm like, I don't know what the SAT is, but if you're taking it, I'm going to take it. Wow. Like, I didn't know what it was. And I was, I'm like, I'm going. And um, the truth was, is I had a teacher, Ms. Spicer, my English teacher, who changed my life with three words. She said to me, you can write. And I was like, well, everyone can write. And she's like, no, you know what you're doing. And she she tried to put me in the honors class. I had some sort of conflict. She said, here's what we're going to do. You're going to sit in the corner for the entire year. Ignore every homework assignment I give. Ignore everything I do on the blackboard. You're going to do the honors work instead. And you're going to thank me later. Wow. And I remember when my my first book, uh, the second book I ever wrote, the first one never got published. The second book I ever wrote got published. I went to her room. I knocked on the door. She said, can I help you? I said, my name is Brad Meltzer. I wrote this book and it's for you. And she starts crying, Jack. And I'm like, why are you crying? And she's like, I was going to retire this year because I didn't think I was having an impact anymore. And I said, are you kidding me? I said, you, got, you have 30 students. We have one teacher. And so Miss Spicer is still, uh, you know, authors. We don't like to send out free books. We want people to buy them. But I send her a free <laughs> book for 25 years now. I will send her a free book every single time. No. Just, you know, way. the least thing I could give you. So she changed my life. And that's when the 10th Justice, the first book came out. It was all, it's even even as I sit here today, a blessing that I got to meet her.
0: Wow. That is an incredible story. I hope teachers are listening. That's amazing. But then you go to college and then you end up back in New York. Is that right?
1: I do. What happens is I go to college at the university of Michigan and I had debt to pay off because whatever it was expensive. And I was going to go to a guy named Eli Siegel was going to give me a job to work for him in like marketing or sales or something. He said, come work for me. It was actually in Boston. He said, come to Boston, move your stuff to Boston don't go to law school. That's ridiculous. Come work for me and I'll be your mentor. I'll take you under my wing. I said, fantastic. So I move all my stuff to Boston. I move everything to Boston. And the week I get to Boston, my boss leaves the job. I'm like, (laughs) mother. I'm like, I can't (laughs) believe this. I blew it. I wrecked my life. I did jacket. What all of us think we do in moments where we think we wrecked our lives. I said, I'm going to write a novel. (laughs) I had no idea what I was doing. I had no clue. I was like, everyone has one novel and I'm going to take my shot. And every day I sat down to write, I just fell in love with these imaginary people. And like, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to do it. But I I, I just fell in love with this process of telling, talking to these imaginary friends. And, and that first book quickly got me 24 rejection letters. There were only 20 publishers at the time. I got 24 rejection letters, <laughs> which means some people were writing me twice to make sure I got the point. But um. I said, if I was young and stubborn, I said, if they don't like that book, I'm going to write another. And if they don't like that, I'm going to write another. And the week after I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letter, I started what became the 10th Justice, my first thriller. And uh, it, it changed my life.
0: Wow. So that first one, do you still have it on the shelf somewhere? It's that- somewhere.
1: Like you can see my shelves right here You uh, on the podcast. You can, but I'm sitting in front of the shelf. There is a copy up here. I do keep it. And listen, I could sell it now and be like, hey, let's sell it. It'll be awesome. But I feel like that's just cashing in on people, you know? I mean, Mm. I I feel like every book you put out should be your absolute best. If it's not your best, don't put it out. Your readers deserve better. And um, I keep it here and I love that book and I can take it now and like, you know, make it move faster and I can redo it. But that, that book, what I love about it is it's me falling in love with the process of writing. It's me figuring it out literally in these 400 pages of that book. And it's kind of like if you took a '57 Chevy, you know, you can you can put in a new, you know, uh, like XM Sirius radio, so you have satellite radio instead of like the crappy radio it had. You can put in a muffler so it doesn't rumble. You can put in better windshield wipers so it's smoother. You can do all the things you should do to make it modern. But if you do, you rob it of its soul. Mm. And I don't want to rob that book of its soul by just improving it with 25 years of you know what I think is knowledge. But I, I love that it's me at 20. Something years old, just trying to figure out what the hell I'm doing with my life, and you can see it on every page. It's mistake after mistake, but passion after passion.
0: Oh, I love it. No, that's a man. What a story. So, did you take that second book? Then, did you know that it was uh, it was different enough that uh, that hey, someone's going to notice this one? And, and did you send it out to the same twenty publishers and get one back offer back? Or how did that? What did that process look like?
1: Yeah. So for me, it was interesting. Um, my agent gave me the best advice. She said, "I can." She said, You got 24 rejection letters. Um, and the last, you know, she said to me, I can try and sell this book into like a small, small, small house that no one's ever heard of. But I'm just worried if we get, if we put it out there like that, you're never going to get out of that little, like that that small place. But I like what you're talking about when you told me about this new one. Just take a shot at it. And so I sent it off to her. It was, I'm not joking. It was half finished. I hadn't even finished half of it. I was, I had started law school at the time because I was too scared. To wait till I just was so worried about making money. I went to law school out of fear because I didn't want my dad's life. I didn't want to struggle with money the way my family struggled with money. I didn't want to have that thing where every single thought in your brain is like, how are we going to get to the next day? I didn't want to have that end of the month phone ringing that would happen when we knew at the end of the month the phone was going to ring and we knew not to answer it before a caller ID because we knew that's when the bill collectors called. I hated that growing up. And, and I had it for so long as such a clear part of my life. But I was like, I need something that if this all goes to pot and it goes to crap, I need to fall back on something. So I went to law school. I was halfway through the book. I sent it to my agent, and and she sent it to an agent out in Hollywood and they and was able to option the film rights on it. And the movie never got made, but it suddenly was like some kid in law school optioned the film rights to his first novel. And then the publishers, because they heard I had a film deal, they you know, we sent it out again to a, to a similar group. And um and I had a couple of interviews, but one of them said yes, And as you know, it's that one person sometimes changes your life. I'm sure you remember yours. But I never tell a story. I'm gonna tell a story because it's so fun. So here's the story of how I, so I was about to get married, actually at the time. And my mom was in Florida, and I was in New York at the time. And my mom said to me, "You're getting married, And I saw your picture when you came down here, or when you, or you were actually I was down a couple of weeks before. She's like, "You look like death. You're so pasty, you're so white." it's your friggin' wedding. Go get a tan. I'm like, mom, I'm not getting a tan. Like I don't go to tanning salons. I like tanning salons. For, that's like, a, like the worst thing you could do. Like anyone who goes in a tanning salon, like I'm judging you. Right. I'm like, I'm <laughs> never going to a tanning salon. I'll never do that. What kind of like soft, like think, no way. She's like, go get a tan or you're going to go get crap in your wedding photos for the rest of your life. I'm like, <laughs> so I, I literally <laughs> take my mother's advice. I tell my, Fiance at the time, I'm like, listen, anybody calls, I don't care if it's the president himself, don't tell him where I am. I'm so embarrassed that I'm going to a tanning salon. So I go to this tanning salon, and uh and I always I, one of the things I always was obsessed with is I wore a pair of lucky underwear. And and in my the character in my first book, like he literally wears his lucky underwear on his first day of the job. Like it was just a thing I used to, I took every test in college in the same lucky underwear. I was just crazy like that. And I go in the tanning booth and you know you strip down to your underwear and you put those little goggles on so you don't radiate. It's the first and last time I ever went to a tanning salon. <laughs> I'm lying there at like a baked potato in the machine and the machine goes off, goes dead. And I'm like, what the F is going on? And I hear a knock on the door and they say, you have a phone call the pre-cell phone days. And I'm like a phone call. I'm like, someone's dead in my family. That's it. This is bad. And I pick up the phone. I'm wearing this towel. and She's like, <laughs> call your agent. You got an offer. And I'm like, what? And I Quickly, hang up the phone. I call back my agent in Boston. I call him up and I say, and she tells me we got an offer. And the only thing I remember thinking at the time is I look down, and I'm wearing my lucky underwear, and I'm like, yes, baby, the underwear come through. (laughs) Like I was so psyched. So that was the time I actually got that first yes, and and obviously, you know, again, that moment changed my entire existence.
0: (sighs) And you're wearing them today, still wearing that same pair. I wore them
1: just for you, my friend.
0: You know, isn't it odd that Florida, Southern California, Hawaii, uh, Tempe, Arizona, places like that have tanning salons at all? I know. Like.
1: Well, yeah, I was in New York at the time, so that's okay. my, that was my one defense. Is it okay. was winter. It was winter in New York, but yeah, there there are more tanning salons in Florida and California, like than any. I'm like, you know, the sun's outside. <laughs>
0: it's right there.
1: But again, I will still say, I will still judge you for the tan as yes. someone who's been in one. I don't care. I don't take it away. Like but I fully love my experience with beach fun, Tammy, because for that day, that 45 minutes was the single greatest 45 minutes. And, you know, you know, when you get that first, yes, like you, you know, you'll never forget that there. I guarantee you, like, tell me where you were on your first, yes. When did you get it? Where were you oh, yeah. sitting? I, I guarantee you, tell me right now, where were you?
0: Yeah. At Coffee place in New York with Emily Bessler, who is my publisher and editor. I love today. Emily. And she's a sweetheart. I love she's her. so yep. great. And her telling me that a uh, threw out a two hour coffee that, uh, that she wanted to buy the book, but I needed an agent. And of course I'm like, well, how do you get one of those? Cause I had no idea. Uh, and then I remember going outside after that two hour, a little over two hour sit down with her and just getting on the phone to my wife as I'm walking through the streets of New York, just don't even kind of know where I'm going, but I'm talking to that phone and I'm so elated, um, that she wants to buy this book. It wasn't like, we'll see or anything like that. It was like, she wants this.
1: Yeah, that's it, man. And that's the thing is you can forget, the phone call you're on 10 minutes ago and whether you told that story, but you will never forget that moment that you felt like your life was changed by that one person. And, and you know, for me, I remember going to the editor and saying, you know, well, okay, great. You bought the books. How do we sell them now? You know, how are we going to sell these to people? And he's like, and I remember he told me, he said, you know, books are very different than movies. He said for a book, you know, it, unlike a movie, like a movie, you like George Clooney or, you know, they like Chris Pratt. You hear a good thing, you go see the Chris Pratt movie. Like that's the way it goes. But they said books are very different. Um, books, someone has to say to you, you gotta read this book. And whether it's The Lightning Rod or The Escape Artist or Terminal List, whatever it might be, someone says you gotta read this book. And he said books are sold by word of mouth. So he said if you want to sell your book, one of two things has to be true: either one, you know a lot of people, or two, you know a couple people with really big mouths. Mm. And I should tell you about my family because they, they are, we, we have big mouths in my family. my And my mother, I, I will tell you very quickly because it does explain more about me than anything else I'll say today. My mother, may she rest in peace, died from breast cancer years ago. Um, and when I went to, when Borders, the bookstore Borders was still around, the head of sales for Borders said to me, Guess where your books sell more than anywhere else? Straight sales, not even per capita. And I was like, New York City, 8 million people in one place. It's like, Nope. I'm like, I don't know, Washington, D.C., I write thrillers set in D.C. Nope. The number one place where my book sold was the Boca Raton of Florida borders, one mile from the furniture store where my mother used to work, which means wow. my mother single-handedly beat 8 million New Yorkers. Wow. And, and my dad was no different. He would go, he also, he passed away a few years ago. We've had a rough couple of years in my house, but I feel very blessed to have them. But my dad would go into every window of every bookstore and be like, what do you mean Grisham's in the front window? <laughs> Not anymore. And he pulled it out, and he was like, "Now Meltzer's in the front window." And and like my parents, our marketing plan for the launch, Jack, was unleash these two people, my mom and my dad, on the universe. And and to be true, uh, the truth is, is they did they did the job, man. They did.
0: Uh, that is, that's a, yeah, no, exactly. That that word of mouth is so powerful, and you know they had to put in some serious work to do that because they're not on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and uh, YouTube channel and a podcast and all the rest of it. I mean, they're telling people actual word of mouth, uh, which used to be kind of around the water cooler or outside uh, for a smoke break, like that was it. That's three. people. Oh, you put your. They were clocking time.
1: They were <laughs> clocking time.
0: When they died,
1: I cleaned out their closets. And I found, I'm not joking, you can't make this up, stacks of my books that they were, wow. obviously I'd give them all free. I remember not about my parents ever buying a book, but they were clearly just buying them and hoarding them and they would give them away as like tips for the valet. Like whatever they were <laughs> doing in their life, you would get a book. Like if, if you met my mother, she would pull out clippings from her purse and be like, here's my son. Oh. Um, I'm like, mom, no one gives a crap. No one wants to, but she did not care. God bless her.
0: Yep, no, that works. I mean, uh, and now of course we can we can put something on Instagram or another social platform or whatever it is, and that's that modern day word of mouth, and people can read it and instead of going to the water cooler at work or outside for the smoke break, they can tell their circle of friends, which maybe three followers. It may be 10, it may be 20,000, it may be a million, it may be 30 million, but it's the same word of mouth. You've got to buy this book. I mean, it's the same thing just with modern platforms. So um, that's something I think that I recognized very early on as I took a breath and looked at the space, which I didn't do until about a month before the first book came out, because I thought you could go to the mountains where we are and write a book in a cabin and send it to New York and start the next one.
1: And oh I yeah, thought, no, no, you—that's exactly how it works. That's exactly how it works.
0: <laughs> I thought it hits the New York Times list, and people just leave you alone until the next one comes out, and you have plenty of time. And no, oh that, yeah, maybe it was like that at one point in time. Uh, I think it was like learning. in JD Salinger
1: days, like you could just like mm-hmm. JD Salinger could go be a recluse, and they'll just take care of it for you. Like yep. those days are dead. You got to be like Barnum himself right now. You got to like you are the circus. Yeah. And I and it's sad. I actually I don't think it's a good thing. I mean, if I could get rid of. I mean, I have fun on social media. I love that people like have fun with our stuff on social media, but you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a job. Like it's mm-hmm. a, it becomes a part of your job and, and it, that is means like less efficient of your writing. But, but if you don't do that, people always say, why do you do it? I'm like, cause you no, know, that's part of the job, man. Don't mm-hmm. complain, do the job.
0: Yeah. No, I feel very, very fortunate, but it does take a lot of time because I do put as much thought into anything that I put on Twitter or Instagram as I do into a sentence or chapter or paragraph in in any of the books, just because, you know, people are spending that time with me and uh, they won't get that time back. And so I take that as a responsibility that the book has to be- Absolutely, man. I feel like I don't care if
1: you spend, yeah, I I remember never buying a hardcover book because we couldn't afford them. I think Mm -hmm. I bought like a Dave Barry book because I found it on sale. And then the first hardbook book, that I ever bought after that was my own, like wow. because we and 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 I, I there are people will come to my events and they'll bring me the most dog-eared like taken from clearly what is like a, you know some yard sale copy of one of the books being like I couldn't afford a ticket in line or I couldn't do, I'm like get your ass in here I get yep. it man I will always always make sure to take care of you and we you know. Yeah. We do when we do the, the work we do with the USO, like they know, I tell I tell them all the time, like, you have a vet who needs a ticket. It will always be there for them. We did, we've done tours. We, you know, make sure that, in fact, we still do, like, if you're a veteran, first one there, there'll be a free copy for you. Like, we make sure that we take care of those people who, because if not, what are you doing, man? What are we doing?
0: Oh no, that's amazing. And you're know, that person that brings in that faded dog-eared ripped cover from the guard sale copy. When you sign that for, for them and have to shake their hand and take a picture and say hi and exchange a few words, like that's that word of mouth. Again, they're going to go out there and they're going to tell everyone that, that that will listen to them, um, how awesome you are and how great this book is. And you've, I mean, that's, that's really, I had this guy, I'll
1: never about. forget. I had this guy, this was years ago, maybe for the escape artist or before that. And he wrote to me privately and said, I can't afford a ticket. I always try to do non-ticketed events. All my events are free for the lightning rod. The whole tour is free, but there are like, I think four or five events that just for capacity reasons, they have mm-hmm. to sell tickets. It's just going to, they're worried they're going to sell out and they got to do it. And a guy wrote to me and said, I can't afford to go. I'm so sorry. And I wrote back to him, I'm like, you're not missing this. You're my guest. And I didn't care. I didn't, we didn't publicize. we didn't tell anyone. We, whatever we do it. Got this is the crazy part of the story. I'm talking like three years later, he writes to me privately and just says, I just want to thank you because I was so on my ass at that point. And I'm back on my feet. And I just want you to know, I'm going to buy one of your new books. And I was like, dude, you don't have to buy anything, but it meant so much to him. Yeah, um, And I know the people who took a chance on us when we were on our ass and you you do not forget that.
0: Yeah. No, it says a ton about you and you know he's, he's going to pay that forward as well. You know he's gonna. Oh, that's what I said. Don't do. don't
1: pay it to me. Pay it to someone yeah. else who needs it. Right? Go do it. I don't care. Take it all out of the library. Do what you got to do.
0: Yep, no, exactly. He's going to be a better person for it because of that example, and I I love that. It's, uh, that's you know that's what I, what I love about you and seeing you in interviews. Uh, you know, you come across as how you are, and uh, and it's 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 so amazing. It's inspiring to me and inspiring to everybody that follows you or reads your books. Uh, it, no matter whether the, the, the thrillers or the conspiracy uh, nonfiction or or they get the kids the the children's books. I mean, it's yeah. No, I love everything you have going on. Speaking of everything you have going on, though, how on earth do you juggle all these projects? There. do you do you prioritize and execute? Like do Hey, I'm doing a, the kid's book now and that's going to be X number of months. And then it's thriller for X number of months or how are you, how are you planning your years? I guess, because it's been a yeah, couple of years since, to. uh, since the last thriller came out. So how do you uh, juggle all these things?
1: Yeah. So the, the thriller is the one thing that's the through line. that just takes the longest. Cause you know, you're sitting blank page and you chapter one, create the world, go to it, have at it. Um, that's the hardest. The kids' books, you know, writing a 400-page thriller compared to a 40-page kids' book is just, um, mm. you know, I, I know they they both have their art, their, both are art forms. You have to put your time into both, but it doesn't, you know, I, I can do it so much quicker when it's just 40 pages than when it's 400 pages. And so what I, what I do is I can't do two things at once. So what I do is I'm writing the thriller the whole time and then I'll take a break and say, okay, right now I'm going to take off and do this kids' book. I'll get this done. Then I can go back to the thriller and I'll use that yeah. to kind of marinate. Um, and the same thing with the the George Washington conspiracy books and the Lincoln conspiracy about the secret plots to kill Lincoln and the, and the secret plots to kill Washington. I mean, people know me for, I think for the thrillers, but those are real stories. And when you tell that real story, Josh mentioned, I work on those together. You just got to follow the history. The story's there. You just got to, you know, tell them what it is. So it takes Again, it's a different skill set because you're, you're doing reporting, you're doing 50 pages of footnotes, you're getting every detail right. Um, but to me, even though they all sound different and crazy, a good story is a good story. And and I just, I think you've got to make space in your life for what you love. If I For me, and this is just me, if I wrote a thriller every year, and God bless you, I know you, you can do it and you can do it really well. And there are many people who can do it really well, but I'm not one of them. If I wrote a thriller a year, they would quickly be churned out garbage. They just would. I'm, I'm just not that fast and uh, it takes me long. And And I realized that if I, and I think just for the way my brain works, if I did one every year also, I I need, I my brain needs to kind of, it has a short attention span, needs to do other things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm sure the same way this podcast is like a way for you to scratch a different itch for yourself. Like you get to like do a different part of your brain and that's that's a recharge. And and I think everything as a writer, you can do to recharge and
0: fill up the sponge
1: allows you to then squeeze it dry, but it's just organization skills. It's not
0: much more than that. This is my year to get organized. I just went over with my agent, my, uh, my grand strategic plan vision for the next 10, 20 years. And, uh, so
1: let me, let me tell you something. I don't care what they say. I know they're going to all tell you and Emily will kill me if i tell you this, but they always, people always say to me, how do you, how do you not write a book a year? My publisher won't let me. I'm like, tell them you won't. I'm like, tell them. I'm like, they tell me what you think. They don't tell me the same thing. Brad, your sales would be even better if you could sell Boogie. I'm like, okay, that's fine, but I'm not doing it. Yeah. And whatever. I just want to do the things I love and I don't want to hate what I love. And if you make me do the same, you know, if I said to you, Jack, what's your favorite movie? And you said action movies. And I said, great. You can only watch action movies the rest of your life. You would eventually hate action movies. That's possible. Right? You, whatever it might be. And I just feel like, I never want to be that guy. Like we yeah. said at the start of this. And so for me, Don't let the publisher ever push you around. Make the time, especially with your family, like carve out the time because it goes so quick and, and I think it's worth protecting.
0: Yeah, no, I need to get better about uh, being present when I'm with my family cuz now I'm not. That's a my resolution.
1: Month. That's New Year's resolutions. <laughs> <being> <laughs> is it present? nice? Yeah, it cuz
0: it's uh, cuz it's so easy especially when I'm doing these one this one book a year thing um that I go downstairs now in the new place go downstairs sitting there dinner or whatever it might be and I'm thinking about this plot point or I'm trying to solve a problem on the written page upstairs that I ran into. Uh, so I'm not actually there. So I'm trying to get uh, better at that too. Uh, Yeah. But you're never
1: going to solve that. That's how you're, that that's called being a writer. Well, always going to be in that daydream land. But the key is, is to, at some point, like stay downstairs, man, don't go back up. I know you can go up at nine o'clock or 10. And I was eventually like, no, stay down. Try to put the phone down as best you can. No, don't, don't scroll. And, and I find I'm, you know, giving this advice. I need this advice myself, but like, it's vital. It's vital stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, I did that last night and having the new house where we have this physical separation because the last couple of books were written in a closet off the bedroom. My first, yeah, I I I had a closet. (laughs) That's rough. Uh, Because every time I would do something like an interview, I'd have to take all my research and all the books and throw it into the bedroom and sit down and look like I was nice and organized and then go back and I'd have to figure out where the yellow stickies were in the notebook that went with this one and rearrange the chaos again before I got back at it. But that takes time and my wife would lose it. I not really lose it, but I could tell it was getting on her nerves a little bit, walking into the bedroom clean when she left. And then everything from my office closet all over the place. When she walked back in, not ideal. but last yeah, night I went downstairs ideal. and I was there. Like I didn't come back up. Um, that's, it, brother, but that's, that's also it. because the book's done. The next book is done. I'm on first pass edits right now, so it's uh, uh,
1: now you're now you're now you're yeah. cruising. so don't worry about that.
0: Yeah, so it's good. It's uh, and I did so many edits on the last word doc that, that came in. I, I don't think there'll be very many in this uh, first, second and third pass I that should be That's the best uh, I said. finishing
1: is like the best part. When you finish and even when I don't care, you bring on all the edits you want, but just having a draft done,
0: Oh man, I miss those days. Yeah. And uh, and then it's back to get on schedule for book six because last year was scripts and book five at the same time going back and forth, which was great. I learned a ton, but uh, yeah, it uh, it, it was a lot to do. But you've been doing this for a long time and you've done the TV shows as well. um, And you had the decoded, you had lost history. And in lost history, you found the flag that was raised on 9-11.
1: Yeah, that was... uh, um, That was, so I went to History Channel. I basically said to them, uh, I want to use our TV show like a modern day wanted poster. I want to be able to, I'm going to go on TV. I'm going to find lost artifacts. I'm going to tell people the story of these lost artifacts. I'm going to say, bring them back. And people are going to bring them back. And I remember they said to me, are you going to find anything? And I'm like, I guarantee you we're going to find something. But I also guarantee you we have no idea what we're going to find. Whatever we think we're going to find is never coming back. Whatever you think we're never going to find is going to show up. And the very first episode of Lost History, I go on television, I say, we all know that famous photograph of the firefighters at Ground Zero raising the flag on 9-11. And what no one knew was 24 hours after that photo was taken, the flag went missing. And I went on television, I talked about how it happened. I looked at the camera and I said, someone out there, I know you have it. If you bring it back, I'll give you $10,000. And what I couldn't say at the time is four days after that episode aired, a man walked into a fire station in Everett, Washington, in Washington state. He said, uh, I have the flag from 9-11 and I want to bring it back. And we had the former head of the FBI's art crimes unit help with authenticate. It took a better part of a year to authenticate it, to do all the, the, the testing we had to do on the dust itself, on the things we got, high dev video, just that showed things that the general public actually didn't have. So we could see little things in the flag, and little that you couldn't possibly make up or recreate. And he said to me, "This flag is now more authenticated than most Rembrandts in museums." And I was like, "What's wrong with Rembrandts in museums?" You know, like I was like, "Oh crap!" But I, I did get to unveil that flag on the anniversary of 9/11 recently in the 9/11 Museum, where it's currently still on display. I've had, you know, people have sent me a photo of a Pearl Harbor veteran saluting that flag, and. Jack, of all the things I've done in my life, this was easily probably the most humbling to just even have that small role in it. And I love that that flag is still on display there. And I encourage anyone, go to the 9-11 Museum. It's not a a depressing museum. It's a museum of inspiration and and, and, and heroism. And you see some amazing things there. I love that the flag is there to this day.
0: It's incredible. and yeah, That museum, every, every American should ship. Well, every person should go there and they do such a good job with it. It's so, so moving. It's, an, it's such an emotional experience to be there. Um, and where did, how did that flag get to the guy in Washington? So he got, it's interesting. He, so the, the story that he told
1: us was, um, the flag was given to a woman who lost someone on nine 11, lost a family member and someone gave her the flag. Now, don't forget when the flag was raised even when it was taken down, it wasn't famous yet. It doesn't become famous until two days later when every newspaper in the country runs with it. So when it came down, it was just a flag. It wasn't the 9-11 flag. It was just a flag. And they took it down and someone said, here, you can have it. And she had it for all this time. And, and she said, you know, I think you'll really, he was a flag collector of all things. And she's like, I think you'll like this. And he saw the show and was like, oh my gosh, I know that tape. I know that flag. Where we got lucky is um, that they it, it made it to raised, they made a makeshift kind of hallard, um, which is the thing obviously you, you put on the flag and the little clips and the thing you hoist it with, instead of being just a, a professional one, it was homemade. And because it was homemade, you could see things on it that you otherwise couldn't recreate. And the, the best part of the story to me is when we found that I said, can I can I talk to the guy who brought it back? And I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to thank him personally. I was like, I want to just say thank you on behalf of the American people. I want to thank you for bringing that back. This matters. But I lost a friend in 9-11, um, Michelle Heidenberger, who was a, on the Pentagon flight, she was a flight attendant on that flight, and I, I always was searching for her, and in her honor, the three thousand names were too big to me. It was too many to to kind of be able to to almost like digest. But but I always thought I was going to find it for her, and I said to him, um, I want to thank you for bringing it back. And he said, You want to know why I brought it back? And I said, Why? And he said, Because when you were telling the story about the flag on your show, you mentioned your friend Michelle. And that really got to me. And the crazy part was, is I ad-libbed that part of the script. It wasn't in the script. I just felt like as I was telling the story, I wanted to make it personal. I told that story of her. He's like, that's why I brought it back. So then I go to Michelle's husband, who is this amazing, he was a pilot also. And I said, Tom, I found the flag and I found it in honor of your wife. And he says to me, you dumbass. No, Michelle would tell you, you didn't find it in her honor. You found it in the honor of all the men and women who survived and who are around today. That's who you found it for. And we, it was just this, I and mean, he's one of my dearest friends. Like we were just in tears. It was so beautiful. I was like on the verge of tears when he's telling me this story. Um, and the best part of the whole thing is he never took the reward. To this day, he's entitled to $10,000. We happily were like, here's your check. I, it wasn't my money. History Channel happily wrote the check. He would not take it. And uh, he just wanted the flag to be back in the right place. And I fully respect him for that. Wow, that's even better! Gosh,
0: what a story! Well, where did the uh, the bug for conspiracies come into play? I mean, I think uh, you know I love reading about conspiracies, whether they're uh, nonfiction explorations or they're woven into thrillers. Just as a fan of the genre growing up, there was always a an element of conspiracy. It seemed like in all the the thrillers that I read growing up, uh, whether it was large or small. Um, Where did that bug come from? And uh, yeah, yeah. it's a good question.
1: I don't even know. I mean. I could tell you this, my dad, the, the first ones I remember, are. I remember reading, I remember watching all the president's men. Mm-hmm. I was really young when I, I mean, I always saw it on HBO, I was really young. I don't even remember in the theaters. Um, but I love that. I love that taking down of a president by like two ordinary people was just, that was mind blowing to me. And I was a little, little kid when I don't, I have no memory of Watergate. I, I was too young. I was born in the 1970s. Like, so that that was but that movie was like where i got the story and then i remember when we moved to florida i had no friends but the game i used to play this will tell you again uh more than i should probably be saying but like the game that i used to play is, i get on my bicycle and uh this is my 25th year as a writer so jack my my solemn vow is like this whole tour is i'm going to just tell stories i hate telling the same story so i'm gonna tell you're gonna hear crap i never get to tell but i used to get on a bicycle and I would just pretend that someone was chasing me, and I would just ride as fast as I could, like a maniac, trying to outrun him. And I'm like, there's something psychologically wrong with me. Like when I look back, I'm like, "What's wrong with me that as a kid, that's my favorite game, like <laughs> run away from people trying to kill you." Um, but it was. And, and I don't know why, but those are the books I gravitated to. I loved Agatha Christie. those are the first books I remember reading, and I remember seeing that dead body in that first chapter, and then that key question that has motivated. At least you know me for you know 25 years of writing now, which is asking that same question I've been asking for decades: Who done it? Who done it? And I I just love it. And I don't I never liked the kind of I like good writing and literary writing, but I I needed a plot. I needed that action. I needed that danger. I wanted to see people like risking their lives. That was just far more appealing to me. And I think part of it was also I grew up on superheroes. Yeah. I grew up on Superman and Batman and Spider Man and. And those characters, I know that they're imaginary, but they're part of the American psyche as much as George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. And, and the reason their stories persist is because you they know they're not just interesting stories, but they say something about us. And that to me is the beauty of America, right? Is like that that person who will risk it all, not because they have to, but because it's the right thing to do, because they're doing something right for someone else. And that power of an ordinary person. Um, is just so potent to me. It's my core belief. I believe ordinary people change the world. And I don't care where you went to school and I don't care how much money you make, that's all nonsense to me. But I believe in regular people and their ability to affect change. And, and those heroes, Batman taught me that and Superman taught me that how to be good and how to be kind and how to how to do right. And um, that is something I just refuse to give up on. So it was my mixture of that that kind of power of an ordinary person mixed with my love of of you know that danger that just thriller writing just became the st- one story I wanted to tell.
0: And, and now you've gotten to write some of those comic books, some of those. Uh, some I know. Those yeah, that that's here.
1: crazy. <laughs> uh, listen, I love writing the lightning rod, but when I get to write, you know, B-A-T-M-A-N and I get to put words in Batman's mouth, I'm, I'm wearing my underwear on the outside of my pants That's <laughs> it. Like that is the most badass. Like you can do it. I mean, I know it's fun to go see the filming of your thing, but like it's Batman. It's Batman. It's Batman. That's yeah. it. It's just Batman.
0: I mean, yeah, I mean that's amazing. How did that come about? How did the first comic book come about? Did you uh you pursue that or did someone offer it or how did that come about?
1: Yeah, no, the, so um a dec- I I've been hiding since my very first book. I hide in every single book. I still hide things that no one will find. I hide puzzles, I hide cryptic things. I just hide everything mm-hmm. in them. Um, and I also hide comic book references. Nice. And for four books in a row, I was hiding comic books. And this was before comic books were cool and before superhero movies like were big. Like this is when it was just nerds. Like, mm-hmm. and there'll be like one dude at every sign. He'll be like, Meltzer. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I saw what you did there. And it's nice. not like Clark Kent or Bruce Wayne. Right. It's like, it's deep cut. It's yeah, a heart. Yeah. it's like you with guns. Like, you know yeah. when someone knows their guns or not. I know when you really know your superheroes, yeah. right? Like, I know what your crap is. And uh, an editor for DC Comics came to me and he's like, he was the last person in line at the book signing. And Kevin Smith, the director, was writing Green Arrow at the time. It was their DC's number one superhero book. And he was leaving and no one else was working in comics. You either were a comic writer, or no one outside. Mm. And he's like, you want to write one of our most popular characters for DC comics? I'm like, I've been waiting my whole life for someone to ask wow. me that. So I literally got proposed to add a book signing. It was the greatest signing as far as I was ever concerned. And again, just so much fun to do. And, and And has been this wonderful thing that I've been able to share with my kids. And, and um, you know, there's just nothing like getting to put that kind of good. It's not the good you create, but like that, that you're part of this amazing um, kind of quilt that has been knit together by thousands of creators and you get to kind of put a little stitch in it. And and that stitch has the word Superman on it. So cool.
0: Before I get to your new, thriller. Uh, First Conspiracy, Lincoln Conspiracy. We talked a little bit about these these nonfiction books that you've done. um, Plot to Kill... George Washington. I mean, these two conspiracy books are just, I mean, incredible. The lifeguards, kind of the, you know, the the, the essentially secret service inner circle around George Washington. Uh, you have betrayals, you have a largest public execution, I think, in US history up until that point. Uh, it wasn't in the US at that point. Um, at birth of a counterintelligence agency, essentially, uh, precursor anyway, uh predecessor, I should say. Um, what was that like writing that? And then I wanted to ask you about the last conversation between George Washington and Benedict Arnold. Um, and Cause there's all these little things, part, the, history is so fascinating. Anything I can do to get people to go and spend some time in the pages of books that have a touch point with history. I, I want to do that. And yours do that so well. Um, but no, what is that last that. conversation between them? And uh, the, there's three things I think that Benedict Arnold asked of, uh, of George Washington wanted to, to send him his luggage, which is a, No one really knows what that was all about. Yeah. So, So,
1: yeah, let's let's unpack all that. I mean, it's so good. I mean, and again, I didn't make up the story. It really happened. There was a secret plot to kill George Washington at the start of uh, the Revolutionary War. When George Washington found out about it, uh, he gathered up those responsible. He built a gallows, and then he hanged the person uh, in front of 20,000 people, the largest public execution, as you said, at that point in North American history. George Washington brought the hammer down, was like, do not mess with me. I'm George Washington. I'm going to be on the money one day. You know, like he was just badass. And what I love about the book is, you know, we all tell the story about George Washington, like George Washington's the greatest man who ever lived. And we, you know, faced the British at that point in history, the greatest fighting force that existed at that moment. And we just believed in democracy and held hands and we took them down. And it's an awesome story, but it's not the true story it's not what happened at all. When George Washington at the beginning of the war, George Washington had no experience. He completely got out general by their generals. He just didn't have the experience. In fact, one of the great scenes in the book of the first conspiracy is he gets pinned back uh, by the British in one of the early, early battles of the war. He's got the East River behind him. He's got the British in front of him. There's nowhere to run. This is the moment George Washington should have died. It should be over. It's done. It's done and we lost. And in the middle of the night, George Washington does what really great leaders always do in moments where they should be done is he improvises. And in the middle of the night, they start, he starts commandeering boats along the East River one by one and putting his men in it and sailing them away to the other side of the East River. And, and the key moment is that George Washington won't get in any of the boats until all of his men are away safely first. And not just the big top, you know, the generals and the big people, but like the lower guys too. And his men see that. They see that he's risking their life for him. And it's not that that's the magic moment that won the Revolutionary War. There are plenty before and plenty after. But to me, leadership is not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in your charge. And that's what George Washington stands for. In fact, I'll tell you this. When when, uh, President George H.W. Bush, who, of course, died last year, uh, he and he had given me a blurb on the book, he, and and what no one knew before he died is that he was bringing in. They were bringing in some of his favorite authors to read to him um, right before he died, and I was one of the people that they brought in. And so we went in. No one knew I was there. I didn't talk about it actually until they told me like a year later because they said don't talk about it. I said you got. Then they said tell the story. I said okay. Um, so now I can talk about it, but they said. Listen, you're gonna read to him for like five, 10 minutes. He's gonna the Secret Service said to me, He's gonna be sleeping in five or 10 minutes. He's just sleeping most of the days. I said, You got it. I'm just honored to be here to serve him. And I go into the room, the Secret Service leave. It's just, you know, we know it's the end. I know it's the end. It's just me and my wife, President Bush and his service dog Sully. And they leave, and on his desk is a stack of like dog-eared books that he's read. It looks like a can't tell you how many times. And one of them is the first conspiracy is our book about George Washington. And he had read it early because I sent him an early copy. He would given me a blurb. But President Clinton had also actually blurbed it as well. And President Bush, five minutes in, falls asleep, sure enough. And I look at him and I'm just like, I'm going to finish the chapter and get out of here. And I get to that part where George Washington presents the Declaration of Independence for the very first time to his troops. He has it read to them for the first time. And he has someone read it to them. And I get to those words, Jack, those words we all know. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And in that moment, when I say the words, President Bush's eyes pop open. And he's just locked on me wide awake. And I get to the end of the chapter. I say, sir, you want to read another? And he goes, "Mm mm-hmm, because he can't speak it anymore. He just goes, "Mm mm-hmm, or "Mm mm-mm. Get to the end of that chapter. You want to read another, sir? "Mm -hmm." Mm-hmm. Want to read another, sir? "Mm Mm-hmm. And at the end, I'm there. Instead of being there for five or 10 minutes, I'm there for an hour. And I say goodbye to him. I know I'm never going to see him again. But, you know, they invited us to his funeral. And one of the things I was struck by at his funeral is the one word that everyone kind of seemed to use in their tributes to him was this word, decency, decency. And yes, I know it's because, you know, he was a decent guy, but I think as a culture right now, we're starving for decency. We're starving for it as a culture. And I love that we got to use this book about George Washington to show people again, what decency really looks like in leadership. And I, I love the book. And, and as to your question, when he, when he had that final moment with, with Benedict Arnold, he said to him, um, he wrote a letter, a secret letter Benedict Arnold wrote to George Washington that was delivered to him as Benedict Arnold was escaping. And he basically said, like, um, don't kill my wife. Is he wrote three things in the letter. He said, don't kill my wife. She didn't know anything that I was up to. He says, don't kill my men, my staff. They didn't know what I was up to. And he says, and send me my belongings. And to this day, no one knows what those belongings are. And if I were George Washington at that point, I mean, it was his best friend I would train him. I would have burned his belongings. But George Washington, again, basically takes his belongings and actually sends them to him. And to this day, nobody knows what he sends back. And I used that in a in a thriller actually, in one of the thrillers to um, called the, the House of Secrets uh, as a plot point. I use it in a fictional way, but it really happened. And those stories of George Washington, I I would find, you know, write a nonfiction book, would then help me with a fiction book. So I love bringing all those things together. Yep,
0: yeah, I find that little nuggets from uh, other research weave their way in, whether it's a conversation to help develop another character or just something to, to to lay down in case I want to use it further on, and maybe even another book. Or I love doing things like that. So uh, in our, I want to talk to you about your your latest novel, of course, Lightning Rod, which is the one that uh, that is out now when this podcast drops. But before we get to that, uh, we talked about the first conspiracy. There's also the Lincoln conspiracy. Uh, Everybody should go get that one. We won't talk about it here because we don't have uh, enough time. But once again, a fascinating story. And then you have one called the 10 greatest conspiracies of all time. And uh, so is there a conspiracy or is there something that you learned in all your research that surprised you the most or something you keep going back to uh, every now and again? Like, I still... Even though all these years have passed since I wrote this book or since I did this research, I still can't believe this or I'm still so shocked by this or this is still so amazing. So in all those conspiracies that you have, whether it's this book or other ones you've done done since, but um, which one fascinates you the most or do you keep returning to in your head as uh, unsolved or something that's just surprising or just intriguing to you that you keep returning to?
1: Yeah, I listen. I of course love the JFK one. It's just the gift that keeps giving. That's, yeah. It's a good one. But but as for the one that I'm obsessed with lately, um, you'll see it's the next conspiracy book. I'll nice. tell you offline, you okay. and I, but I can't announce it yet. But um, but it's it, it, after the first conspiracy after the link conspiracy the next one is my obsession. Nice. And uh it'll come out next year but uh it's it's the new one. And that that's where I we have been for the past 2 years in my head.
0: Perfect. I love it. I love it. And uh so let's talk about about uh, the latest novel Zig Nola um escape artist came out 4 years ago now. Uh Lightning Rod out now. Um a couple questions. Female protagonists, uh, very strong, not in need of saving. I've heard you say that before. You were very, uh, in not just in these two books, but in as well, uh, writing female characters that aren't in need of saving. Um, so that, the study of maybe uh, the trade of being a mortician uh, in there as well, and then Dover Air Force Base that features uh, in
1: Yeah. So let's start. So I do a lot of work, as I said, with the USO. USO, you know, they used to do it. They used to send uh, six thriller writers every year to go entertain the troops. So I've been all over the world with them. I've been to uh, Kuwait and Oman and Qatar. I've been to Cuba. I've been to Turkey. Wherever they send me, I go. And I love doing trips with them to entertain and say thank you to troops who have served us. Um, And it was there I learned about Dover Air Force Base. I know you know it. I know serving you know it, but I didn't. And um, and Dover is of course the place where our fallen troops, their bodies are taken. You've seen it on TV, you've seen those flag covered coffins come off the planes. And I was struck by it because what I was struck by is that the men and women who work on those bodies, you know, those it's not just our fallen troops, but it's our fallen spies, it's our 007s that are out there, it's our CIA operatives out there. So Dover is a place that's filled with secrets. And Then I saw the work they do. So you have a mortician there who will spend 12 hours rewiring someone's jaw and smoothing it over with clay because someone wants to see their dead son one last time. Rebuilding someone's hand from scratch because a mother says that she wants to hold her son's hand one last time. These are the best of the best of us working on the best of the best of us. And I was just humbled by the work there. I went to Dover. I've made multiple trips there. They were so kind to me there. And I remember saying to them, um, you know, have you ever had a a body come in and and maybe there's a a secret message hidden on it, or maybe there's like a tattoo, or maybe there's something like a secret thing. I was obsessed with it. And they said to me, if you were on a plane and you wrote, and you knew the plane was going down depending on the height of the plane, but you knew the plane was going to crash. If you wrote a note and you ate the note that upon the crash, the liquids in your stomach could preserve that note upon the crash. I'm like, that's a great idea for a book. And they said to me, that's not an idea. It really happened." We found the note in, in a member of the troops in, in someone's stomach once. And I was like, oh, I got to do that. And and that I, that's what happens in in the escape artists is basically a body comes in. Zig, who's our hero, the mortician at Dover, looks and opens up a body. And he's taking care of this body because it's a woman that he knows from when she was a little girl. He was friends with her daughter, this woman named Nola Brown. And he knows that Nola at a Girl Scout camp thing burned part of her ear off when a soda can exploded in the bonfire. So he knows this. He knows her. he wants to take care of her, show the body respect, show the body the dignity that it deserves when anybody comes into Dover. And he opens up the body and in her stomach, he finds a note. And the note says, Nola, you are right. Keep running. And he realizes this body, this is not Nola Brown. She doesn't have the thing in her ear that was in her ear. This is not Nola Brown. Nola Brown's not dead. She's alive. She's on the run. And I just ruined chapter one of the escape artist for you. She's the escape artist, but I was struck by that story and I was determined to use it. And then Nola, as so Zig's one of the heroes in the book, that the male character who's the mortician and Nola, when I was researching, when we were doing the 9-11 flag show, they took me in this, I was up at, a uh, uh, in Virginia on a military base there. And, uh, one of the things they showed me was this great military, um, thing that they had where the, military, the army has all these paintings. I'm like, why does the military have all these paintings? It makes no sense. They have paintings from Adolf Hitler, but paintings from generals and all these captains and everyone doing paintings. And they're like, they explained to me that since World War I, this is true, the US Army has had an actual painter on staff whose job it is is to paint disasters as they happen from the beaches of Normandy to Vietnam to 9 11. There's a painter. I'm like, you're telling me that everyone else is running them with guns blazing. And you got someone running in with paintbrushes on them. That's the craziest guy in the world. I got to meet him. I want to meet that guy. I'm going to make him a character. And they said, you mean her, you want to meet her. And I was like, oh shit. And she was the most bad ass mother you've ever seen. And I was like, I got Nola Brown. Wow. And Nola Brown became a real character. And she's the other part of this Zig and Nola team. So The Escape Artist is the first book You'll see them in the lightning rod. You don't have to read the first one to enjoy the lightning rod. They're all standalones and you can enjoy them in any order. But obviously these two characters and those USO trips had a huge impact on what I was doing for the past decade now.
0: Man, that is fantastic. I love it. Uh, So you have this, this is the latest one, the conspiracy books out there, the I am books, the comic books, the TV shows. I mean, you've got a ton of things going on. And uh I got my eye on the clock. I know I have two minutes. So I want to thank you for uh for taking this time. I know you gotta hop right into another one. Uh I mean it means the world to me to sit down and uh and have a conversation and I hope we can link up in person one of these days soon. Yeah, and, no, uh, email me when we're done breath. and
1: I'll tell you the other I'll tell you the other thing too. But I, I do have to say you're just uh, one of the nicest guys around. I know we become like, you know, I know what like Twitter friendships are, but I, but you can also sell, you know, when people are bullshitting and I, I always have appreciated about your honesty and, and your passions are out there. And, and I think that's always a good thing. So thank you for supporting me with these books and, and all the other fun stuff. Oh,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much and uh, take care and best of luck with the rest of the tour. Thanks brother, Jack. Take care. Just wanted to say a quick thank you to Navy Federal Credit Union for taking such good care of me and my family over the years. I've been a member since 1996, right there. There's my Navy Federal Credit Union cue card right there. So yeah, been a member for quite some time now. They've done a fantastic job with me and my family. And I know that investing and saving can be stressful and Navy Federal Credit Union takes that stress away. A lot of educational materials and they can help you get on track in 2022 when it comes to saving and investing. So go to navyfederal.org backslash save and invest. Trust me, you won't regret it. I know I'm not the only one looking for healthy snacks for me and my family, especially after a very busy 2021 as we move into 2022. And if you've been following me, you know I'm looking forward to figuring out a schedule where I'm getting a little more sleep, where I'm getting some exercise, and where I am eating right. And that is where Paleo Valley comes in. Check them out, paleovalley.com. And you can use Danger Close 15 at checkout for 15% off your order. Now, this stuff is awesome. Paleo Valley, uh, how do I know it's awesome? Because I just crushed a few of these beef sticks and these things are awesome. There's all sorts of different flavors, jalapeno, original, teriyaki, summer sausage, garlic summer sausage, and they are awesome. So, Paleo Valley, thank you so much for sending these out to me. Uh, and for those that are wondering, these beef sticks are 100% grass-fed and grass finished. Many on the market claim to be grass fed, but actually are finished on grains. And they use beef sourced from small domestic farms in the US. This is a family owned company, very small family owned company. So they're making sure they do it right, that they are not cutting corners. They're prioritizing health over profit and uh, just an awesome group of people. What else do they send me here? I have these superfood bars here with grass bone broth proteins. And there's all sorts of flavors here too. Pumpkin spice. How did you guys know? Awesome. Dark chocolate chip. <laughs> I'm going to crush those. Lemon meringue and apple cinnamon. Uh, all sorts of supplements out there. So be sure to go check out paleovalley.com. Enter clo- code danger close 15 for that 15% off your order. Once again, it's hundred percent Grass-fed beef with higher levels of omega-3 fatty acids, vitamins, and minerals, and bioavailable protein. So, thank you so much. I am fired up to get move into 2022 here, and uh, this will be a part of my journey. And look at this one right here: uh, organic super greens. Oh yeah, I am all over that. So check them out: paleovalley.com. Danger close 15 at checkout for 15% off that order. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. So before I get to some of the gear here, I wanna talk about trade paperbacks. So trade paperback is probably my favorite version of the novels because it is a little bit bigger here than the mass market that's this the mass market comes out not quite a year after the hardcover the hardcover is obviously what comes out first and see the trade is almost as big as the hardcover but it just has a good feel to it and uh, I like where they put the the blurbs and how they do all that stuff just a little bit different than uh, than the hardcover and different than the, the mass market and uh, it just just feels good so this one is out now oh and this those are CDs yeah CDs still exist uh, but the audiobook, drops the same day as the hardcover. And I think up until this point, up until May 17th, when In the Blood comes out, uh, if I was to do an unofficial poll of people who have reached out on social media over the past few years, I think more people have told me that this is their favorite than any of the others. So uh, I think that's because it probably has more action than the others, but that changes on May 17th because In the Blood is the most action-packed novel to date. And I didn't intend it to be that way starting out. It just naturally progressed that way. So that's coming in hot on May 17th in hardcover and in audio and ebook all on the same day available for pre-order now. And Savage Sun is now out in this version, my favorite, uh, trade paperback. So if you are interested in trade paperback, this is available right now. All right. What else do we have here? Surefire, man. Thank you guys. Check that out right there. I had the older version of this. This is the Stiletto Pro. I'm guessing I'll have the Stiletto. No, there's not an L in there. Stiletto, yeah, Stiletto Pro. Uh, I have the earlier version. This is the newer one, uh, and I'm looking forward to giving this a run. Actually, I'll test it against that old one I have because the other one is downstairs. I know exactly where it is, and I'm guessing this one is brighter, but very cool. Surefire, thank you guys. I had Surefires with me on every single deployment, so thank you so much. This is really cool. So The First Marauder by Luke Ryan. And uh, I mean, this is pretty special right here. This is his first uh, novel. And uh, he's done some poetry before and, and uh, sent me this. And it's published by Dead Reckoning Collective. So I just want to read a little bit. First, I'll read about Luke Ryan here because uh, I mean, what an impressive background. Grew up overseas, the son of aid workers, where he spent nine years in Pakistan and five years in Thailand. He eventually joined the U.S. military and became an Army Ranger for the 75th Ranger Regiment, where he went on four deployments to Afghanistan and left the service as a team leader. After a brief nomadic period, Luke attended the University of South Florida, where he got a degree in English literature. Uh, From there, he worked for a number of jobs, uh, journalist, videographer, copy editor, creative services producer, social media manager, and is now at Black Rifle Coffee. Um, But his, uh, his poetry on war, one's called The Gun and the Scythe, The other is called a moment of violence I like that, but uh, check it out right here. The first Marauder. Very cool. Uh, Luke, thank you so much for the note. Um, I sincerely appreciate that. And thank you for signing it. And then this is cool too. This is a little bit about the publisher and here we go. It's dead reckoning collective. And it says dead reckoning collective is a veteran owned and operated publishing company. Our mission encourages literacy as a component of a positive lifestyle. Although DRC only publishes the written work of military veterans, the intention of closing the divide between civilians and veterans is held in the highest regard. By sharing these stories, it is our hope that we can help to clarify how veterans should be viewed by the public and how veterans should view themselves. So check out deadreckoningco.com, deadreckoningco.com. And uh, Luke, thank you for sending this to me. It means a ton. Sincerely appreciated. Uh, What else do we have? another black rifle connection. Uh Uh-huh. Chris Hunt, Code of the West. Have you not heard of Code of the West? If you have not, then you're probably one of the last people to hear about it. And uh, Code of the West, check them out on Instagram. And you can link up in bio and get some amazing artwork by Chris Hunt. And let's check out this one. It says, never corner something meaner than you. That's awesome. And here's their motto. Live with courage. Keep your word. Code of the West that's pretty cool. Probably be a a better country if more of us did that. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Laissez faire, by the way, on Instagram. And I think that is it for this edition of the gear portion. Awesome. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Brad Meltzer, go to bradmeltzer.com. That's B-R-A-D-M-E-L-T-Z-E-R.com and link to all the different projects that he has going. Follow him on the social channels and be sure and pick up his latest novel, The Lightning Rod. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. Officialjackcar.com is the website and Jack Carr USA. is for the merch. My next novel, In the Blood, drops on May 17th and is available for pre-order now. Thank you so much for your time. Sincerely appreciated. Take care. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.